This show is part of the Head Stuff Podcast Network. Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Coo Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grow New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, about the trooping and solitary, and close to us, sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm-hmm. Fireside. Hello and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology. We retell it, have a chat about the tale itself and about the craft, the culture and the history of storytelling. My name is Kevin Ciolan. I'm your host and your Fireside Bard. Welcome to episode 183 of Fireside. Today on the Irish storytelling podcast, we have our third and final tale of the bush ranger and outlaw, Ned Kelly. This is Ned Kelly's last stand. And before we get down to that, a very big welcome to any new and or returning listeners. If this is your first listen, why don't you at least listen to the two previous Ned Kelly episodes, Ned Kelly and the Bushranger and Ned Kelly on the run um, to get a bit more context to this, although you don't need to ultimately to do that. And if you're a returning listener, thank you so much for your continued support. Please do follow me over on Instagram at FiresideBard. Email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com if you want to get in touch, any business or personal inquiries, or if you just want to say hello. Uh, you can buy my book Garden Sea uh, in paperback form from headstuff.org or in Kindle form from Amazon um, all the links are in the description below and you can buy my book of poetry Garden Sea and Neo Myth of Home thank you to those who continue to buy it each and every week it's a, my greatest pleasure at the moment sending the book all over the world we're actually sending our very first one to Australia all the way back to the place that I've just arrived back from um, if you don't want to buy the book, you can support the podcast by joining headstuffpodcast.com uh, and joining Headstuff Plus, where for as little as five euro a month, although you can pay more if you want, you can gain access to bonus material for all of the podcasts on the Headstuff Podcast Network. And more of them there are every couple of months. The network only continues to grow. But of all the hard sells, uh, we now get down to business. Um, I am, as I just said, I've literally just arrived back yesterday from our five-and-a-half-month tour of Australia with the world of musicals. Um, I am still... I think I've beaten the worst of the jet lag, but we just arrived home yesterday afternoon, managed to stay awake for the rest of the day and sleep through the night. Um, So I'm still a little bit woozy, as I have been when I was recording some of the episodes after some of the shows. But overall, I'm feeling good and very happy to be back home and back recording the first episode of Fireside Um of uh, my return to Ireland, back very much uh, in home. I'm not back in the studio at the Headstuff Podcast Network yet. Um, that will be that will be in the next couple of weeks. I'll get back into the actual home of Fireside, back in Dublin, um, and look forward to re- re-recording in the the Headstuff beautiful surroundings of the Headstuff Podcast Network once more. But so appropriately, uh, as my time in Australia has come to an end, we have our last and final tale on uh, Australia's 
most notorious son, and that is the Irish-Australian outlaw, Ned Kelly. And I've really, really enjoyed my time looking at Ned and reading and researching about him. Um, I've been reading a book over the last couple of weeks called Ned Kelly's Final Days, uh, which is a legal historian, a legal history book on the intricacies of the trial of Ned Kelly, and particularly for this last episode, uh, centering on his last stand. It was a very, very a dense and very interesting read. I'll put a link to the description for that again in the in the description below. Uh, all the links will always be in the show bio. Um, and this is I had thought to do this before coming home, but we ended up having a bit of a a longer experience than than we thought to get home. We were meant to be home on the ninth and didn't get end up flying back until the fifteenth. Uh, so we were a week longer in Australia than uh, was initially planned. Uh, but I was very grateful for the extra bit of time there as well, as we had such a good time. But yeah, this story finds Ned and his gang of Steve Hart, uh, Joe Byrne and his younger brother, Dan Kelly. It finds them at the height of their powers and finds them in their downfall. They have uh, rebelled from the law. They have murdered the th- police officers at Stringy Bark uh, and they have become the most notorious and most famous gang and Ned Kelly, the most famous man in all of Australia. And now we will see how the conclusion comes. And this is Ned Kelly's Last Stand on Fireside. Ned Kelly's Last Stand The role of a suit of armour in a shootout in the colonial Australian outback is surely in the realm of folklore. But of all the stories, rumours and legends of Ned Kelly, this is one that is absolutely true. Even if the Victoria Police Department didn't believe it before it rose from the smoke to fire upon them. Following their successful raids and bank robberies in the rural towns of Euroa and Gerelderi, and their murders of three police officers, the bounty for the Ned Kelly gang became $8,000, the highest ever for a group of bushrangers and the equivalent of $2.1 million today. So at the height of their powers and their success, the group of Joe Byrne, Steve Hart, Dan and Ned Kelly went into hiding. So the Victoria Police began to raid and put pressure upon all known Kelly sympathisers. More than 20 civilians were arrested for allegedly supporting the Kellys, including Ned's old ally, friend and boxing opponent, Wild Wright. The arresting of these innocents turned public opinion further away from the police and possibly more in favour of this outback Robin Hood. The hunt was led by Superintendent Francis Augustus Hare, a six-foot-three South African who made up for his lack of knowledge of bushranging and the terrain of his targets by recruiting a group of Aboriginal police to track the Kelly gang. Hare knew Kelly, having aided in the capture of Kelly's former bushranging mentor, Harry Power. The homes of families, neighbours and perceived allies of the Kellys became base of operations for the Victoria Police. Beside the home of Joe Byrne's mother was that of his lifelong friend, Aaron Sherritt. The police used Sherritt's house to spy on Joe Byrne's mother, attempting to gather any information they could. But when the mother spotted Sherritt speaking to the police one day, it was assumed that Sherritt himself was a spy. Word eventually reached the Kelly gang, and word was sent to Sherritt to give him a chance to escape the police and join the gang in the bush. 
Sherrod must have been under immense pressure, and likely actually gave the police false information to protect his friend Joe Byrne. In fact, Sherrod himself said to Superintendent Hare of Ned, I look upon Ned Kelly as an extraordinary man. There is no man in the world like him. He is superhuman. But when Sherrod did not join them in the bush, the Kelly gang decided that Aaron Sherrod was too dangerous to be left alive. Joe Byrne and Dan Kelly rode to Sherrod's house. Dan knocked on the front door and Joe Byrne was waiting in the back. When Sherrod went to escape from the rear of his house, Joe Byrne shot him twice with a shotgun. While Sherrod's pregnant wife screamed, four policemen waited in the bedroom of the house. Joe and Dan sent the recently widowed woman in to draw them out, but the police would not go and refused to let Sherrod's wife out either. So Dan and Joe shouted into them that they were going to set fire to the house and to come out and surrender while they still could. The police didn't move, and after a failed attempt to kindle a fire, Joe Byrne and Dan Kelly rode away from the scene. It would be some time before any police officer left the house of Aaron Sherrod. Four hours, in fact, for fear that the Kelly gang remained hidden in the bush. Ned Kelly imagined that when the police received word of the murder of Aaron Sherrod, they would send reinforcements up from Melbourne for relief at Penala. This would take the train past the small town of Glenrowan. While Joe and Dan rode back from Sherrod's killing, Ned and Steve Hart went to the Glenrowan railway line and attempted to damage the tracks. When they were unable to do so on their own, they held local labourers at gunpoint and forced them to bend the tracks where the line went over a ravine. Kelly told the locals he was going to send the train and all its passengers to hell. The plan was that the Kelly gang would don suits of actual armour with plates of discarded and stolen metal moulded and smelted to cover their torsos, arms and a tall helmet to cover their heads. The recovered armour weighed nearly 100 pounds. They did not forge armour for their legs, however, as this would have inhibited movement, and considering they were to position themselves at the top of the ravine to fire down upon the surviving police attempting to escape the wreckage of the train, the Kelly gang did not think protection of the knees would be necessary. After the train was destroyed, the Kelly gang planned to ride for the defenceless town of Banala, There they would take over the police barracks, release prisoners from jail, rob the bank and cause general anarchy before returning to the safety of the bush. This new wealth would make the Kelly gang some of the richest men in Victoria, wealth enough some say they hoped to buy their own freedom. But while they waited for the police train to depart Melbourne and begin their master plan, the Kelly gang first took over the town of Glenrowan, including Anne Jones's Glenrowan Inn. They forced 62 hostages into the inn and gave them drink, food, and musicians played and sang throughout the evening. Not your average hostage situation. Known Kelly sympathisers were at the inn too, who rallied support from the crowd as Ned made speeches on police corruption, inequality, and his new convinced sense of vigilante justice. Many hostages would later say that the Kellys treated them incredibly hospitably, while others sat in fear of upsetting Ned. One hostage was a schoolmaster, Thomas Curnow, who helped the Kelly gang kidnap the local constable. 
Once Ned was convinced of Kerno's support, he allowed both him and his wife to return home to bed. This would be the fatal mistake. The train from Melbourne only arrived at Glen Rowan at around 2.30am, and the train slowed at the sight of a man frantically waving a piece of red scarf. It was Thomas Kerno, who had intentionally fought to gain Ned's trust so that he could sell them out and destroy their plan. Superintendent Hare, as well as Sub-Inspector O'Connor and a group of troopers and Aboriginal trackers were warned of the Kelly plan. They disembarked the train and made their way into the Glen Rowan Town Centre. With the hour very late, and everyone drunk and tired, Ned Kelly was about to let all of the hostages go home when Joe Byrne ran into the inn and said that the police were here. The train had not been destroyed and the pub would soon be under fire. Ned, Dan, Joe and Steve Hart all donned their suits of armour, the captured constable Hugh Bracken told all of the hostages to get on the ground, and everyone prepared for battle. The first shots of the siege of Glenrowan were fired around 3am. As well as the police and civilian survivors, present were also four journalists documenting the real-life folktale in action. Within the first 15 minutes of the battle, an estimated 150 bullets were fired between the Kelly gang and the police. Ned himself caught bullets in his left arm, hand and right foot. Joe Byrne was shot in the leg and was forced to retreat back into the inn. Superintendent Hare caught a bullet in the left wrist and had to be taken to the hospital in Benalla. In the crossfire, at least three civilians, including a 13-year-old boy, were fatally wounded in the battle. Bleeding heavily from the gunshot wounds and cuts from the weight of his armour, Ned Kelly retreated out the back of the pub and into the bush. He lay low until sunrise, when he intended to creep up on the police from behind. It was then that further reinforcements arrived for the police, bringing it up to 30 men surrounding the Kelly gang. At around 5am, while he was inside raising a toast to Ned, the gang and their struggle Joe Byrne was shot in the groin and was the first of the Kelly gang to perish. At dawn, still in his proud outback armour, Ned Kelly arose from the bush armed with three handguns and began a shootout with the police. A journalist present wrote, With the steam rising from the ground, it looked for all the world like the ghost of Hamlet's father, with no head, only a very long, thick neck. It was the most extraordinary sight I ever saw or read of in my life, and I felt fairly spellbound with wonder, and I could not stir or speak. After a half-hour gunfight, it was an officer named Steele who was the one to notice the fatal flaw in Ned Kelly's armour. His legs were unprotected. The armours had been designed to fire down upon the train from a ravine where leg armour would have been an inconvenience, but Steele took his advantage, and with a shotgun blast to the legs, Ned Kelly was finally brought down. But even with his nearly 30 gunshot wounds, Ned didn't die. As he was captured and brought to a doctor, the shootout at the Glen Rowan Inn continued. Dan Kelly and Steve Hart gradually released more and more of the hostages when it was safe to do so. There had been intermittent ceasefires once the police realised that there were women and children inside the inn. It wasn't until the afternoon that the police made the decision to set fire to the inn. 
After the building was engulfed in flames, the police stormed the building to find the dead bodies of Joe Byrne and the charred remains of Steve Hart and Dan Kelly. The position of the latter two bodies suggested that Dan and Steve had either shot themselves or each other to avoid capture or being burned alive. Joe Byrne's body was pulled out and tied up to the town for photographers and all to see. The Kelly gang was no more. The gunfight at the OK Corral, one of the legendary shootouts of the American Wild West, lasted for two minutes. The siege of Glen Rowan lasted for over 12 hours. While his brother and friends were dead, Ned Kelly's wounds were treated and he was brought back to Melbourne to stand trial. The police could have shot Ned legally on sight with the warrant that was out for him, but an example had to be made of this larrikin bushranger. The court was presided over by Redmond Barry, the same judge who had sentenced Ned's mother to three years hard labour only two years earlier. One of the key witnesses was Constable Thomas McIntyre, the only survivor of the police murders of Stringybark Creek, who had witnessed his colleague Constable Lonigan being gunned down by Ned. McIntyre had escaped before the deaths of Kennedy and Scanlon, so after all of the horse theft, assault and murder, the only crime Ned Kelly was eventually charged with was the murder of Lonigan. Ned had said that, that if there was anyone on the earth he was going to kill, it would be him. As Judge Redmond Barry passed down the sentence of death by hanging to Ned, he said the usual, May God have mercy on your soul. Ned replied to the judge, I'll go further than that. I'll see you there, wherever I go. Strangely, Judge Redmond Barry died just 12 days after Ned's execution. Ned was allowed to see his mother Ellen once more before he died. She had not yet completed her own prison sentence, and Ned had pleaded with the courts that now that they had caught him, they should release her. This appeal was denied. Ellen Kelly, the mother who had raised Ned through all the hardship of selection and squatters, of the death of his father and abandonment of his stepfather, who was herself in jail for association with her son, said to her eldest surviving boy, Mind you die like a Kelly, Ned. Ned Kelly was brought to the gallows of the old Melbourne jail. As the hood was placed over his head, when he was asked if he had any last words, Ned said, Ah well, I suppose it has come to this. Such is life. The lever was pulled, the rope tightened, the body jerked until it swung silently. Ned Kelly's physical form had died, but his legend had only begun. In the nearly 150 years since his death, Ned Kelly has captured the imagination of Australia, Ireland and the wider world. He remains an incredibly divisive figure, with those who consider him nothing but a cutthroat, self-interested thief and murderer, a man unworthy of praise or commemoration. But to others, he represents a resistance to English Protestant oppression of the poor Catholic Irish in Australia. He represents the last of a dying breed of Australian, the last of the bush rangers who roamed the wild bush and outback before Australia was connected and modernised. The siege of Glen Rowan was considered a victory of such modernisation. But regardless of your stance on him, Ned Kelly is a captivating and fascinating account of mythology made real, a true folk character, 
and as Kelly biographer Ian Jones said of his legend, a Robin Hood-like figure survived. Good-looking, brave, a fine horseman and bushman and a crack shot, devoted to his mother and sisters, a man who treated all women with courtesy, who stole from the rich to give to the poor, who dressed himself in his enemy's uniform to outwit him. Most of all, a man who stood against the police persecutors of his family and was driven to the outlawry when he defended his sister against a drunken constable. Such was Ned Kelly, the myth. The end. And there we have Ned Kelly's last stand on Fireside, and I hope you all enjoyed it. Yes, the Siege of Glen Rowan, one of the th- three main events in the life and legend of Ned Kelly. We had two last week, or the week before last, when we did the Fitzpatrick incident and the shootout at Stringy Bark, both of which created his his uh, reputation as an outlaw and a criminal and started to stir the idea of his legend but the Glen Rowan Inn is where it all came to an end and where, ironically, my fascination with Ned Kelly began because we had been in Melbourne and Ned Kelly, as I said in the first episodes, was always a name I had known, but I'd never seen any of the films. I didn't really know anything much about him other than he was this Irish-Australian rebellious sort of figure. And then when we were in Melbourne and looking for things to do around the city, one of the things was myself and my brother Kieran went to the old Melbourne jail uh, where Ned Kelly was hanged and a huge amount of the jail is dedicated to his life and legend and seeing all of the Kelly stuff there started a kind of interest in him particularly when I see the suit of armor they had the they had a suit of armor in the glass case that was I think the costume that George Mackay wore in the most recent Ned Kelly movie uh, but then when we went into more rural New South Wales and Victoria um, and were in the Victorian towns of Wangaratta, we were staying there, uh, that is when we took a short drive over to Glen Rowan to the siege of the final battle with the Kelly gang and where I had the experience I spoke about in the first episode, the incredibly fascinating and bizarre experience called actually Ned Kelly's Last Stand, which was a sort of Pirates of the Caribbean-esque animatronic experience of the final days of the Kelly gang, literally from the death of Aaron Sherris uh, through to his the shootout and through to his subsequent trial and execution. And seeing all of that, while that was... Uh, a, a baffling and bizarre experience it's certainly one i'll never ever forget and really cemented the interest in ned and that's where i decided i wanted to do at least one fireside episode on it and that turned into three and i'm so glad i did expand it as much as i did but kept it contained to those because ian jones that same biographer who did that final quote uh, he also said like the more you learn about kelly the more uh, interesting and more uh, deeper and deeper it gets as with many, many subject matters, but with Ned Kelly, when it is such a divisive, every you'll hear one thing that makes him sound like a monster and you'll hear other things that sounds, makes him sound falsely accused and noble. And the truth naturally lies somewhere in the middle and humans are complex and especially legends are complex because they naturally grow arms and legs with time. Um, but when I was in Beechworth, which is another of the towns in what's called the Kelly country, I went to do a bookshop and got this book on Ned Kelly's 
final days, which the bookshop owner, when I, he saw me browsing through the, the Kelly section, said uh, that that was one that set the record straight. And it pointed out, as I said, it was a legal history of it, which was not my background at all and not the kind of book I would usually read. But it was incredibly interesting to see how law and order worked in um, Victorian era uh, Australia, certainly. I'm sure it was the same and different in many ways in other countries but were how the trial and execution of Ned was handled, and especially like both by the public and the press. So, for example, we have this quote about um, Ned Kelly rising from the smoke, like dressed like Hamlet's father when he rose with the shootout, armed with three guns, like, well, two guns and one, one more to go. Um, in reality, apparently, like Ned could like barely move at that point in that final fight and that it wasn't so much this epic shootout at the end that uh, it was legend it was made legend to be um he was like shot so badly and like even when though he survived his some 30 gunshot wounds which is legendary in itself he never regained the use of that left arm that he had initially been shot in but the public opinion aspect was very interesting because it was. It has been said that it wasn't that the public went against the police and towards the um, Kelly gang. They just more went against the police, and uh, that that didn't necessarily imply support for the Kellys, but also that of all of the major Melbourne and Victorian newspapers and even wider Australian newspapers of the time. Uh, which all represented the interests of different communities. There was more of a Catholic interest in one, a more, more Protestant interest in one, more like wealthier uh, people, poorer people, naturally, it was all over different different demographics uh, that usually had polar opposite opinions on most uh, contemporary events and modern modern affairs. Uh, this was the the trial of Kelly was one that was they were quite unanimous about the press was overall just totally against the Kelly gang and crying and crying for his execution from basically the, the death of string, the stringy bark uh, police officers um, through to his execution and that it was more a, a small band of loyal father, followers who had always supported him that fought his case in the end including some of his surviving siblings uh, Maggie Skillion, one of them, who was actually at the siege of Glen Rowan, um, crying for her brother Dan to come out and escape this. And she would later then go to Melbourne to try and get in to see, see Ned before he stood trial and was denied. Uh, and it was her who, who brought the bodies, the charred, unrecognisable, burnt remains of uh, Steve Hart and Dan Kelly back to be buried in a grave. Whereas the body of uh, Ned was uh, subsequently the head was was stolen of it and no one knew where the skull of Ned Kelly was. It was reportedly used as a paperweight and Joe Byrne's body was not only tied up uh, for a show by, at Glen Rowan so that the photographers could take pictures, it was then taken back to Melbourne and displayed again before being taken away and buried in a pauper's grave and no one knows where that is either. Um, so it was a very interesting book um, to try and set the record straight of how the complexities and the the nobilities on both sides and 
I guess the how we still take for granted the one truth or another rather than like things being able to true at the same time, people being able to be one thing and be the other. Um, but I highly, highly recommend it, uh, Ned Kelly's final days. And just reading more about Ned in any way is, is one thing I've hoped with these couple of episodes that you all will have found interesting. And if you already knew about Ned, maybe learned something you didn't, or if you didn't know him at all, um, I hope that you have enjoyed these and and then go on and research a bit more yourself and read a bit more and as always anyone wants to message me about recommendations for other books or sources on ned um i still have one more to go that i haven't read now which is about the kelly hunters um the people who began to hunt him after the stringy bark when he had been declared the outlaw and was able to be shot on sight um, i'm hoping there's a good bit i'm very fascinated i mentioned briefly there these aboriginal trackers that were used um, to find the Kellys by Superintendent Hare as he was South African and didn't come from the, didn't know the terrain well. And supposedly the Kelly gang were very, were afraid of these these Aboriginal trackers because they knew the land better than they did and they was thought that they were the ones who, who would have helped find them so well. Um, so I'm hoping there's more on that as well and that aspect of the hunt. But he is, he's a character, that he's the figure that more books, no, no, uh, more books have been written about Ned Kelly than any other Australian. And that ultimately, I've said that before, but that ultimately really proves the point that whether you like him or hate him, um, thought he was a murderer or a hero, you cannot deny the the fascination and the interest in him over time. But with that, I will wrap things up, folks, at the end of another little saga on Ned Kelly. Uh, next week, we'll have one more, at least one more tale from these... Uh, these Fenian tales of of giants. I have to find another n- new one for it now. Um, but that will be next week. I think we'll do... There's one more still to go from that. Uh, Ushin the Bard. Um, I think there's one more good story still for us to adapt. Um, but that will be next week. Um, as always, p- follow me on Instagram at FiresideBard. Email me at thefiresidebard at gmail.com. Um, buy my book, Garden Sea. All the links are in the description below. Paperback or Kindle. Paperback can be shipped all over the world. Order it, buy it. Uh, look forward to sending it out. Thank you for those who have already. Join Headstuff Plus at headstuffpodcast.com. I'll see you all next time. And remember, wherever you are and wherever you go, you can always join me by the fireside. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.